a thousand generations of Jedi Knights and the Guardians of Peace, Justice, Welcome back to People's History of the Old Republic, episode 7.5, How to Disappear Completely. Last time, we finally started the Galactic War and the Swotor main story and witnessed the first death of the Sith Emperor. This time, we start uh, Swotor's story expansions and say our final goodbyes to Revan and the class characters. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in Legends. Star Wars, The Old Republic, Part 5, The Galactic War Continues, from 3639 BBY to 3636 BBY. When we left off, the true Sith Empire was getting its collective head kicked in. In 3642, they started off the Galactic War by losing the imprisoned Revan, failing to secure resources from Quesh, and being driven off Balmora for the first time in more than 28 years. Somehow, 3641 and 3640 were altogether worse. They lost at least 15% of their military during that time, failed to hold Corellia, and then the Sith Emperor died. This caused the Empire to splinter. In 3640, the Dreadmasters withdrew from the Sith Empire, and then Darth Malgus started a new empire. Yes, the Sith won some battles, but they were either Pyrrhic victories or were quickly rolled back. The Republican Jedi, on the other hand, were sitting pretty. They started out the war by freeing Revan from his prison in the Maelstrom Nebula, but were subsequently defeated at the Foundry. After that, the Republic slash Jedi fell into a pattern of losing at the beginning of each battle only to storm back with massive counterattacks that snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. It happened on Kesh and Balmora in 3642, and then several times in 3641 and 3640, including at Corellia and Ilum. As 3639 dawned, the Republic and Jedi were winning the Galactic War, and the Sith Empire was teetering on the verge of collapse. All of that corresponds to chapters 1-3 and the epilogue of Swotor's main story, which was the base game before five story expansions were added. Those expansions are, in order of release, Chapter 4, The Rise of the Hut Cartel. Chapter 5, Shadow of Revan. Knights of the Fallen Empire. Knights of the Eternal Throne. And Onslaught. This episode will continue covering the Galactic War through Swotor's first two expansions, Rise of the Hut Cartel and Shadow of Revan, and finish all eight class character storylines before they all disappear. Finally, we will end up introducing the Eternal Empire of Zakul as we set up the big changes in the game's third story expansion, Knights of the Fallen Empire. Sotor, Chapter 4, The Rise of the Hut Cartel. Sotor's first story expansion was released as DLC in April 2013. DLC is downloadable content. If you didn't know, uh, Rise of the Hut Cartel begins in uh, 3639, a little more than a year after the Battle of Ilum. Once again, the player's chosen class character steps into the protagonist role for the expansion story, while the other seven unused class characters uh, don't have anything to do during this DLC. Uh, beginning with this expansion, our canonical info ends, and we 
don't know which class character actually stands in as the protagonist, so it will be ambiguous in our narrative too. Rise of the Hut Cartel also in- introduces two new romance options: a male imperial class character. Uh, a male imperial class character can begin a relationship with a pure-blood Sith male named Sitharat, while both male and female Republic class characters can romance a human female named Lemda Avesta. Sitharat and Avesta are the first of seven romanceable LBGT plus characters who appear in the five story expansions, which is great for representation in games and Star Wars. The year 3639. Although the events of the rise of the Hut Cartel take place in 3638, an in-game codex describes the events of 3639, as does the tie-in novel, the Old Republic Annihilation, which focuses on Theron Chan and Operation Endgame. We'll cover that quickly and do a short character profile on Charon then before we get to the Hut Cartel expansion. Following the supposed death of the Sith Emperor and Malgus's abortive New Empire at the end of 3640, the Republic slash Jedi and the Sith Empire briefly disengaged. During this short lull in hostilities, the Galactic Republic and Jedi Order developed a new martial strategy led by new Supreme Commander Jace Malcolm. The Sith Empire, meanwhile, dropped its humanocentric policies by allowing non-humans to join in an effort to restock its military and bureaucracy. When the brief ceasefire ended in early 3639, the two sides fought a series of small, largely inconsequential battles across the galaxy, with the exception of Operation Endgame, which is a joint effort between high-ranking Jedi and Republic SIS to stop the Sith from using the Ascendant Spear. The Ascendant Spear is a superweapon ship created by the Sunraiser that could travel more swiftly through hyperspace than other ships and also interact with the mind of a Force user. Theron Chan teamed up with Jedi Master Nost Dural on several missions to defeat the Ascendant Spear and its captain, Darth Karad. Sean and Nost Duval stole code cylinders with the Ascendant Spear's location from Ziost, but were unable to stop the bombardment of the agricultural world, Ruan. However, at the Battle of Duro, Jace Malcolm led the Sith fleet into a trap while Nost Dural and Theron Chan infiltrated the Ascendant Spear, killed Darth Karad, and destroyed the ship. Character Profile, Theron Shan. It's finally time to fully introduce one of the most important characters in Suator, even if he's been on the periphery thus far. Born in 3666, Theron Shan was the only son of Jedi Knight Satil Shan and Republic soldier Jace Malcolm. After learning she was pregnant, Satel broke off the secret relationship, keeping Theron's birth a secret from everyone, including Malcolm. As an infant, Theron was turned over to the Jedi Order for training. There, Theron was trained by his mother's old master, Ingani Zo, though the Order later concluded that the younger Shan was not Force-sensitive and was removed from the Order as a teen. However, years later, Zo seemed to still believe that Theron could touch the Force, though that may have just been the faint hope of an old man. At some point, Theron learned his mother's identity, possibly because he looks like his mom and they have the same very famous surname. 
After leaving the order, Theron joined the Republic military and had cybernetic cranial implants installed around his the orbital bone of his left eye. These implants could interface wirelessly and allowed Theron to stay one step ahead, saving his life a few times. During the Cold War, Shan joined the Republic SIS, which is a much, much less evil version of the American CIA. In 3643, Theron and Master Zhou teamed up to kill Darth Mechus and stop the Sunraiser from creating more superweapons. Theron continued his SIS work during the early years of the Galactic War doing covert ops, including several assassinations. In 3639, as we just noted, Theron teamed with Nostaral to defeat Darth Karad and the Ascended Spear during Operation Endgame. After the mission, Theron learned the identity of his father after Jace Malcolm inadvertently revealed his old relationship with Satil. Uh, this brought everything to a head as Theron angrily confronted his mother and she apologized for pretty much everything. Don't worry, though, they'll patch things up. When he enters our story, Theron is in his mid-twenties and is tall and lean with olive skin, bearing a slight resemblance to his mother. He has spiky brown hair and a cranial implant around his left eye. Later, Theron can be romanced by either male or female characters, and Shan will eventually propose marriage to the player if they do. The Hut Cartel and Hut Space. Now, we finally arrive at the brief rise and subsequent fall of the Hut Cartel. The Huts don't have a ruling government, but instead have consolidated power under their cartel with individual Hut crime lords ruling territory and enforcing their rule using mercenaries and slaves. The crime lords all report to a supreme mogul whose decisions are final. Hut space is an autonomous zone that stretches from the mid-rim to the outer rim in the far eastern edges of the galaxy. It contains dozens of systems and a few important worlds, such as the capital, Nal Hutta, Nar Shaddaa, and Quesh. By 3642, the Hut Cartel's power had been steadily growing under Supreme Mogul Karaga's leadership, which stretched back nearly 200 years. When the Galactic War began, some Huts wanted to use it as a distraction to extend their power outside Hut space, but that proved impossible for the first few years. The Kesh War lasted for much of 3642 following the Sith Empire's invasion and attempted resource grab. The Republic and Huts combined to expel the Sith from Kesh, but it wasn't an easy victory. Then, in 3639, things got worse for the Huts. After the Sith Emperor's supposed death, the Dreadmasters defected and formed their own military force. The Dreadmasters made the Outer Rim World Oricon their home and used it as a launching point for their attempts to gain new territory. This would serve as the basis for the Hutt's attempted conquest of Makab and the Dreadmasters Crisis, which we will discuss momentarily. By the end of 3639, the Dreadmasters had completed 15 mostly successful invasions of Hutt space, taking some territory for themselves. The last such raid attacked Nar Shaddaa and was repelled by the Hutts, though Supreme Mogul Karaga was killed. Shortly thereafter, Toboro, one of those Huts who wished to expand the Hut Cartel's power, became a supreme mogul. In the earliest days of 3638, Toboro and the Huts made their play, invading Makeb, a nominally independent world that lay in the mid-rim just southwest of Hut space. If these directions confuse you, uh, we always try to put a 
link to a map of the galaxy in the show notes. Uh, in doing so, they added territory, but more importantly, they seized control of the only known supply of Isotope 5 in the galaxy. Isotope 5 had unique properties, allowing it to make some ships invisible and could also be used as an extremely powerful fuel source, which the Hutts mined from Makeb to use for weapons. From Makeb, Taboro hoped to use Isotope 5 to begin a war of conquest and establish Hut dominance over the galaxy. The Republican Jedi responded immediately, sending a large detach- detachment to Makeb, led by Supreme Commander Jace Malcolm and Jedi, Master- Jedi Grandmaster Satel Shan. The Sith, meanwhile, mustered a small fleet and team of elite soldiers under the leadership of Darth Mar. Imperial forces were badly outnumbered by the Hut forces and the Republic slash Jedi, but Mar and the rest of the Dark Council believed securing Isotope 5 could save the Empire. With the Hutt's Republic and Sith converging, it didn't seem like things could get much worse from Makeb until the planet-wide earthquakes began. Hut deep core drilling for Isotope 5 had caused tectonic instability that was destroying geographic formations and would soon obliterate Makeb's atmosphere, killing everyone. Republican Jedi forces worked with Limda Avesta, the daughter of Makeb's leader, to foil the Hut cartel's plans. They stole Taboro's arc, hidden arc ship meant to transport the Hut and all Isotope 5 off-world. In response, Torboro ordered the drilling to increase, speeding up Makeb's destabilization. By now, the Hut cartel leaders had realized that Tor- Torboro was mad and entered into negotiations with the Republic to save themselves. With mere hours left before Makeb was destroyed, a joint task force attacked Taboro's palace, killing the Supreme Mogul in the process and taking enough Isotope 5 to fuel the Ark and flee the planet. The Hut Cartel's brief flirtation with galactic relevance was over almost as soon as it began. However, the Sith were still waiting near Makeb. Once the Ark had fled the system, Imperial forces landed on Makeb and secured the remaining Isotope 5. While seizing the valuable fuel, the Imperials also successfully stabilized Makeb's orbit and atmosphere through a confluence of sci-fi nonsense that isn't worth describing. Suffice to say, the Empire stabilized Makeb and took the galaxy's entire supply of Isotope 5 in secret because the wider galaxy now believed the world was destroyed. The Sith then retreated to Dramund Kaas, secure in the knowledge that their empire wouldn't crumble just yet. In the aftermath, the Republic and Jedi jointly announced the death of the Sith Emperor across the Holonet, sparking mass celebrations on Republic worlds. Darth Maher responded within the Empire, confirming that the Emperor was indeed dead and gone, but that the Dark Council ruled in his place and the Sith Empire would live on. Chapter 4 Interlude, The Dreadmaster's Crisis As we noted earlier, the Dreadmaster's Crisis uh, actually began in 3639, shortly after their defection from the Sith Empire. Briefly, the Dreadmasters were six ancient, immensely powerful Sith Lords imbued with immortality by the Sith Emperor hundreds of years before. They served as generals, prophets, and military advisors for the Empire until the Sith Emperor's supposed death. The Dreadmasters then claimed that no one in the Empire was worthy of their loyalty and withdrew to the planet Oricon along with a small cadre of defectors. In 3639, the Dreadmasters used their meager fleet to secure the services of Trandoshan Mercs, despite losing the Battle of Denova. 
the masters continued making limited attacks and gathering the services of hired guns until they had a formidable military and fleet. They used a group of at least nine brainwashed Sith known as the Dread Host to serve as generals and lead their forces in battle. By the end of 3639, the Dreadmasters had completed at least 15 attacks into Hut space alone, gaining territory and killing their Supreme Mogul in the process. As 3638 began, the Dreadmasters were probably in a better position than the Sith Empire they had abandoned. So it was that in 3638, the Dread Masters made their play to become galactic superpowers, and, much like becoming a real-world superpower, the key is to get as many weapons of mass destruction as possible. Despite the Dread Masters' power and prestige, their plans kept coming up short in almost comical fashion. After failures to secure weapons on Belsavis and Asation, the Dread Masters' ally, Darth Tagris, stole two ancient and powerful artifacts from an Imperial stronghold on Arcanum and escaped with them to Ilum, where he tried to use them. Tagris was tracked down and killed by a Sith force led by Darth Asina and the Jedi strike team. The Jedi and Sith briefly aligned to fight the Dread Masters and would continue to do so throughout the crisis. After this defeat, one of the Dread Masters decided to accelerate events by assembling an even greater army of soldiers for hire on Darvanus, but was killed along with his soldiers in the process. Then there were five. In late 3638, the Dreadmasters' crisis finally came to a head after their base on Oricon was discovered by the Republican Sith. Initially, both sides only sent small strike teams in, but both were decimated by the planet's formidable defenses. In order to salvage the situation on Oricon, Supreme Chancellor Suresh called upon the hero of Tython, the Barsenthor, Meteor, and Voidhound to lead a large contingent in an attack. Likewise, Darth Mar called upon the Empire's Wrath, Darth Nox, the Hunter, and Cypher-9 to lead a Sith incursion team. The two teams would work in tandem with all eight class characters fighting on the same side, carving through the Dread Masters and their armies. After defeating one master in the initial fighting, the eight leaders discovered the final four Dread Masters who came together to fight their attackers. Though the Masters were formidable, they were each defeated and killed, ending the year-long Dread Masters crisis. Before departing Oricon, the Republic strike team was visited by Calphias, one of the Masters who had survived by unknown circumstances. Calphias confessed that he no longer feared death and wished to work with the Jedi to rehab his mind from the dark side. The team spared his life, and Calphias was taken to Tython with the Jedi. With that... Swotor's first story expansion, The Rise of the Hut Cartel, ends. Swotor, Chapter 5, Shadow of Revan. Swotor's second story expansion was released as DLC in December 2014. The expansion introduces the Revanite Crisis, an event that covers 3637. Sorry, an event that covers 3637 finally mercifully ends Revan's story. The expansion also begins an, an end to the eight class character storylines as each will disappear without a trace after the events of, the Sha- of Shadow of Revan. The player character completes their final story quest and then steps into the role of the commander who serves as the protagonist for the fi- final four story expansions. Shadow of Revan also introduces two new romantic characters in Theron Sean and Lana Benico. 
both of whom can be romanced by male or female characters regardless of affiliation with the Republic or Empire. Character Profile The Commander, a.k.a. The Outlander, a.k.a. The Alliance Commander. The character who is known as the Commander in Shadow of Revan and who becomes known as the Outlander in Knights of the Fallen Empire, and then as the Alliance Commander in later expansions, is whichever of the eight class characters the player chooses. The chosen character loses their old nickname or title, but retains the same backstory and choices made to that point in the game. Since this is confusing, here's an example for a player using the Jedi Knight class character. In Shadow Revan, the player will be referred to as the Hero of Tython while doing their class-specific missions, and then as the Commander after joining up with Theron Chan and Lana Benico. Then, in Knights of the Fallen Empire, the player is called the Hero of Tython for the first few minutes of the game, but sheds that title early, permanently becoming the Commander. However, the Commander maintains the same background and choices the player made as the Hero of Tython thus far. This, in combination with the player's actions made as the Commander in the final three story expansions, gives the player a complete storyline that stretches from Swordor's prologue in 3643 through the final expansion in 3626. So just imagine the Commander is any class you like and plug in their backstory from 3643 to early 3637. Since we don't know which class character canonically completed the missions, we'll just refer to the Commander ambiguously as they work alongside various allies. You can tell they didn't. Uh, none of this was written so that people could do like an easier, an easy linear narrative about it. Because uh, yeah, it wasn't at all. The Revenite Crisis in early thirty six thirty seven, shortly after the Dread Masters Crisis ended, a new crisis would erupt. It began with seemingly unrelated events that were nonetheless suspicious: a Jedi and Republic strike team that attacked Korriban under the guise of an invasion causing a Jedi and Republic strike team attack Korriban under the guise of the, an invasion causing severe damage to the Sith Academy. However, the mission was secretly a means of stealing top secret data from the Dark Council archives. Fighting was fierce but brief as the Republic slash Jedi withdrew after their secret mission was complete. However, the strike team was informed that Imperials had attacked Tython simultaneous to their, simultaneous to their attack on Korban. The Sith strike also seemed to be an invasion, but was also secretly seeking an artifact stored in the Jedi archives, which they retrieved. The Sith then departed after causing extensive damage to the Jedi Temple. Despite striking at the same time as the attack on Korban, the Sith extraction from Tython took longer. Now it's obviously not that weird that the Sith and/or Republic for the Sith and/or Republic to strike one another. Uh, nor is it odd that they would covet data and artifacts that their rivals have secreted away in archives. That sort of thing happens all the time. But when a Sith attack on Tython is staged to look like an invasion, but is actually about stealing artifacts, happens at the exact same time as a Republic slash Jedi attack on Korriban made to look like an invasion, but is actually also about stealing top secret files, well, that's suspicious. Why risk such an attack for data or artifacts, and why did they happen simultaneously under similarly false pretenses? These questions vexed Theron Shun and Lana Benico, each of whom planned the, uh, planned the attacks by the Republic and Sith, respectively. 
Initially, Sean and Benico were unaware of one another and were investigating based on the curious circumstances. However, each soon began to suspect their immediate superior of being involved in nefarious scheming of some kind. Theron decided to spy on his boss, Colonel Ryan Darrock, who was making an unscheduled visit to Manon, while Benico followed her Sith master, Darth Arcus, who was also traveling to Manon. It was there that Shan and Benico crossed paths after Derek and Dark Arcus, Darth Arcus met together in secret. Character profile. Lana Benico. As a force-sensitive human female born on Droman Kos during the Great Galactic War, Benico is taken as a baby to train as a Sith. Early on, Benico's penchant for working together and problem-solving was evident, though she wasn't hesitant to execute any who stood in her way. Lana completed her training with Overseer Harkun on Korban and was promoted to full-fledged Sith. After this, Benico's actions for the Sith are a mystery except that she was promoted to the rank of Sith Lord, so she must have been doing something right. Despite attaining the rank, Benico never took a Sith title because she didn't like to get bogged down in titles. In 3641, she became an advisor to Darth Arcus, a pureblood Sith who had recently ascended to the Dark Council after his master, Darth Arho, perished while fighting Malgus's new empire. While preparing to invade a world called Talay, Benico and Arcus's ship was attacked by Republic SIS spies impersonating Imperials. The SIS agents were able to broadcast Sith plans for the invasion of Talay, but all four spies were eventually found and killed by the two Sith Lords. By this time, Lana Benico had become known for her unique and prescient insights into the nature of the Force and the Dark Side, which was a side effect of her deep and powerful connection to the Force. She was proficient with Force Lightning and enjoyed Force Choking her enemies, much like Darth Vader. Though she enjoyed working with Arcus, she began to sense a strange disturbance in the Force that she couldn't decipher and that troubled her. And in early 3637, while preparing for the mission to Tython, Benico learned that Arcus had ulterior motives behind the supposed invasion. She was furious at this betrayal of her trust and confused by Arcus's actions, as she began, so she began investigating his actions further. Benico and an associate followed Arcus to Manan in secret to discover the nature of his plans, where they met Theron Chan and his associate. When she enters her story in 3637, Benico is a tall and muscular woman with a pale complexion and long, wavy blonde hair who is probably in her early 30s. Oddly, she always has burning yellow dark side eyes. Lana Benico is romanceable by male or female characters, and if pursued, the player can eventually propose marriage to Lana. Back in the game, we find that the Republic SIS operatives and the Sith Lord were immediately wary of one another, but decided to work together to uncover the nature of Colonel Darrock and Darth Arcus's plotting. Even though the Republicans said they briefly allied a couple of times to stop joint threats, leaders from the factions didn't take clandestine meetings with one another. Shannon Benico followed their bosses to an underwater lab where a Selkath geneticist was hard at work on a secret project to implant living beings with reverse-engineered Rakatan technology to create a so-called infinite army. 
within the facility, Shan, Benico, and, their, and the small teams they brought to Manon confronted and defeated the Order of Shasha, a group of Force-sensitive Selkath, formed in 3956 during the events of KOTOR. They caught up with Darok and Arcus as the two were making their escape, scuttling the facility as they departed. Shan, Benico, and their allies barely escaped with the truth. After the events of Manon, Shan and Benico gathered a small strike team, including the player character for a raid on Ricotta Prime, where Arcus and Darok fled. Though Shan and Benico and their allies knew that Arcus and Darok were working together to create some sort of cyborg infinite army, uh, they had no proof after the underwater facility on Manon was destroyed. They needed evidence, and they needed to figure out why a Republic colonel and a Sith Lord were working together to build a cyborg army. However, they were not expecting to find a secret cult known as the Order of Revan preparing for an attack, and they certainly weren't expecting to find Revan alive. Briefly, the Order of Revan was a secret society dedicated to following the teachings of Revan that one could find a balance between the the light and the dark. It was formed by a Sith named Tari Darkspanner some decades before the Cold War after she discovered text about Revan's exploits while training at the Sith Academy in Korriban. For years, the cult used a, Sith, a secret bunker on Droman Koss as their base before rapidly expanding in membership following Revan's reappearance at the Foundry in 3642. By 3637, the cult had members in the highest rungs of the Galactic Republic and Sith Empire, and they were prepared to make their bid for power. Initially, Benico, Sean, and the player character were able to make good progress on Mercado Prime, teaming with a Wookiee named Jakaro to destroy a facility producing a cyborg army. Both Darth Arcus and Cole Darak were killed in the raid, and the group hoped this would be enough evidence to expose the Revanites, but they sorely underestimated the Order of Revan. The personnel on Rakata Prime were but a small contingent of the Revanite military. As the group tried to escape, a massive mixed fleet of Imperial and Republic ships dropped out of hyperspace, led by none other than Revan himself. The Revanite fleet unleashed an orbital bombardment on the Temple of the Ancients to kill Sean and Benico's squad, though they escaped before the old temple crumbled into ruins under the barrage. Revan was frustrated at the loss of his infinite army of cyborgs, but decided to use soft power to frustrate Benico and Sean's efforts to shed light on the growing Revanite menace. High-ranking Revanites in the Republic had Theron's reputation tarnished before being fired from SIS while Lana was framed for Darth Arcus's murder and proclaimed within the Empire. Jakaro was also framed and kicked out of Wookiee society, which means the Order of Revan had some pull even on Kashyyyk. Benico, Sean, and Jakaro went into hiding while investigating the Order of Revan's next move, while their Republic and Imperial allies laid low. The Rishi Trap Meanwhile, the Revanites worked to lure the Republic and Sith fleets into a trap above the distant world Rishi, which is technically outside the galaxy on the same vertical hyperspace route as Kamino. The tropical world Rishi has for decades been a pirate haven and stopover for brave travelers attempting to navigate the Rishi maze. The Rishi maze is the closest of the seven dwarf galaxies that surround the main Star Wars galaxy, and two galaxies are connected via a vertical hyperspace route known as the Zareka String. Remember, ships can travel in all three dimensions, so a vertical jump is just as plausible as a horizontal one. 
Not that any of this is even remotely plausible. Thus, we'll follow the same route that Obi-Wan Kenobi followed when he traveled to Kamino in Attack of the Clones and leave the main galaxy behind, if only briefly. Months after Medico, Sean, and Jakara went to ground to hide from the bounties on their heads, the commander found and followed a strange coordinate placed in their ship's navigation computer that led to a world outside the galaxy called Rishi. Once there, the commander met with the fugitives. However, Theron had been captured while investigating, so the commander was dispatched and rescued Chan, who had been tortured by Revan. During the rescue, the commander and Theron were able to learn the full extent of Revan's plan. At some point before 3637, Revan struck a deal with a pirate gang known as the Nova Blades, who had used Rishi as their hideout for decades. Then, following the events on Rakata Prime, the Blades were then sent out to harass the Republic and Imperial fleets, regularly patrolling their territories. The pirate attacks caused the respective fleets to alter their patrol routes, though Revanite saboteurs ensured the new jump coordinates led to Rishi. The trap thus set, Revanites were placed on every single ship in the two fleets to make sure things went as planned. During their next patrols, which would occur within days, the fleets would make seemingly routine jumps only to find themselves above a strange world and facing their enemy fleet. Logically, the Sith and Republic fleets would attack one another and Revanite saboteurs were on board to make sure that cooler heads didn't prevail. Further, all comms were blocked by a signal jammer on Rishi's surface, meaning the fleets couldn't get a signal out or talk amongst their own ships. After the two fleets softened each other up, the mixed Revanite fleet and the Nova Blades would attack, catching Republic and Imperial fleets in a deadly crossfire. If done correctly, the trap would obliterate the navies of the Republic and Sith, leaving the Revanites free to pursue their ends. However, Revan wasn't worried about anything so petty as galactic domination because he knew that the Sith Emperor's spirit yet lived, still sleeping it off in a restorative hibernation on Yavin 4. Revan intended to resurrect the Sith Emperor so that he, he could be killed once and for all. Why Revan would destroy two perfectly good fleets before resurrecting and attacking the Sith Emperor instead of just uniting them to attack simultaneously? Listen, it's a bad Star Wars plan. Just don't ask questions, okay? On Rishi, the commander and Theron reunited with Lana and Jakaro and explained Revan's plan with the survival of the Sith Emperor being particularly shocking. Remember, until this moment, pretty much every, uh, everyone in the galaxy except the Empire's Wrath and the Empire's Guardians on Yavin 4 believed the Sith Emperor to be really actually dead. Indeed, both the Jedi and Sith had convened their own committees that each met for more than a year to determine if the Sith Emperor had survived in any way, shape, or form. In the end, both committees concluded that he was dead, but the far more pressing concern was the imminent threat of both the was the imminent threat to both fleets who, who would arrive within hours. There was no way to stop the fleets from jumping to Rishi, but the group on the ground could disable the signal jammer and open up communications exposing the Revanites and hopefully saving the fleets. The commander and Lana Benico allied with some friendly Mandalorians led by Shea Vizsla, who had settled with her clan on Rishi. Theron, Lana, Jakaro, and others would engage some Revanites in a firefight as a diversionary tactic to allow the commander and a contingent of Mandos to destroy the signal jammer. 
Unfortunately, both fleets came out of hyperspace before the jammer was taken offline and a massive fleet battle began. The space above Rishi was pandemonium as the two fleets had no comms and didn't even know where they were, so they just started shooting. Revan's plan was working until the commander's team destroyed the signal jammer, opening comms across the board. Suddenly, Republican Imperial leadership became aware of the Revanite conspiracy and disengaged from the battle. Revanite saboteurs on individual ships were arrested and or executed while every ship, ship in the Revanite and Nova Blade fleets was destroyed in the short battle that followed. Revan and a small cadre of loyal allies escaped, but that's about it. Afterward, afterwards, Grandmaster Satel Shan and de facto Emperor Darth Mar, the commanders of their respective fleets, agreed to meet on Rishi's surface to hash out what happened and figure out how, how best to oppose Revan. The Yavin Coalition. On Rishi, Satel and Mar met with the commander and their allies and learned the extent of the Revanite conspiracy and that the Emperor had somehow survived. Satel Shan and Darth Mar immediately agreed to put aside their differences and joined forces to stop Revan. Theron, Lana, Jakaro, and the commander agreed to help and bring as many allies as possible. Together, they created the Yavin Coalition, an off-the-book strike force formed solely to eliminate Revan and the Sith Emperor on Yavin 4. Within hours, the Yavin Coalition had grown to more than 40 members, including all eight class characters, and they had a plan to stop Revan. On Yavin 4, the Coalition was joined by a shocking ally, the Force Ghost of Lightside Revan, who had accepted death but couldn't become one with the Force because his dark side counterpart persisted. As we said, sometimes it's best to not ask questions about Swotor. Everyone knew their roles, and the attack was launched with the eight class characters leading the charge directly against directly toward Revan. In what would prove to be their last mission, the group of eight heroes and anti-heroes fought valiantly, defeating Revan's guards and interrupting his rituals to resurrect the Sith Emperor. Revan fled in the jungle alone as the other members of the Yavin Coalition defeated the remaining Revanites. It was agreed that Satil Shan, Darth Mar, Theron Shan, Lana Benico, Jakaro, Shavizla, Lightside Revan's Force Ghost, and the Commander would confront Darkside Revan in the jungles. In the end, Revan was no match for his assembled foes, and his defeat was swift. But the victory was immediately tarnished when the group heard the Sith Emperor's disembodied voice laughing from atop one of the temples. Even though the resurrection ritual failed, there was enough death on Yavin 4 to revive the Sith Emperor's spirit. The spirit then departed to once more threaten the galaxy. The Emperor's return was met with shock, and Darkseid Revan realized that he had been a pawn in the Sith Emperor's plot the whole time. Breathing his last, Revan's Darkseid presence merged with his Lightseid Force Ghost, making him whole once again. Revan's Force Ghost apologized for his mistakes and disappeared as he became one with the Force. In his long life, Revan had done it all. He was a Dark Lord of the Sith, the savior of the galaxy multiple times over, and probably the most powerful Jedi who ever lived until Anakin Skywalker. Revan died in 3637 at the age of 357, and though it got a little weird there at the end, he will be missed. The Death of Ziost. With the Sith Emperor's return in late 3637, the galaxy was once again under threat. His spirit traveled to Ziost, an icy world that served as the adopted homeworld of the pure blood Sith species. 
after Korriban was turned into a lifeless wasteland in the distant past, it would also later serve as the imperial throne world of the Sith Empire after its formation on Korriban. For these reasons, Xeost had long ago become a dark side nexus and flowed with dark side energy, making it the perfect place for the Emperor to gather strength. The Emperor's spirit began tormenting the people of Xeost, and soon his survival became common knowledge within the Empire. Within days, the Sith Emperor used his power to enslave every being on Xeost, making them servants of his will. The Jedi and Republic SIS sent in a covert team of Jedi to investigate, but they were mentally dominated as well with their leader, Jedi Master Suro, becoming the Emperor's favorite puppet. After that failure, Supreme Chancellor Suresh ordered an invasion of Xeost by the Republic military for humanitarian reasons that was actually intended to take advantage of Imperial weakness. Theron Chan and Lana Benico both opposed this, suspecting the Sith Emperor would use the new beings to further fuel his power. But in early 3636, the invasion went ahead. The Sith Emperor enslaved the new forces immediately and then prepared his ritual. Just as Benico and Shan had suspected, the Emperor was preparing another ritual like the one he performed on Nathema that stripped all life from the world and made him almost immortal in 4999. Though a small task force was able to break the Emperor's control of a few people and subsequently evacuate them, it wasn't enough to stop the ritual. As the group departed Zyost, they saw clouds envelop the world as all life and color was drained from the planet by the Sith Emperor's ritual. In an instant, millions died and the Emperor's spirit departed into wild space for inexplicable reasons. The Sith Empire underwent immediate culture shock as not only was one of their holy worlds scoured of all life, but it was the Sith Emperor, their Emperor, who had done it. Of course, we know that the Sith Emperor is the pure embodiment of evil who cares only for himself, but the denizens of the Sith Empire did not. But after Zyos, the scales fell from their eyes and they saw the naked, horrifying truth. Soon, citizens became aware of what the Emperor had done on Nathema and were horrified that their empire was built on a lie. Yes, the Jedi and Republic had committed genocide against their ancestors, but so had their Emperor. It would take time to process this, but the Dark Council, led by Darth Mar and Darth Asena, did their best to hold the Sith Empire together. The Republic and Jedi, on the other hand, were confident of their position as 3636 dawned because the Sith hadn't won a major battle since 3639. Class Character Stories End Though the Sith Emperor's ritual on Zeost technically brings Shadow of Revan to an end, we still have to finish up the storylines for the eight class characters. We'll just do so quickly, not because we have anything against them, just there isn't much left to tell. Though Shadow of Revan does have class-specific missions, they are quite short. Regardless, they do serve to cap off the storylines we began in Episode 7.3 and continued in Episode 7.4. In those episodes, we covered each class character's story from the prologue in 3643 to the end of the chapter 3 epilogue in 3640. We don't know anything from 3639 or 3638 because the rise of the Hut Cartel expansion didn't have class-specific missions. So without further ado, here are the final missions for each class character. We'll cover them in the same order we used in episodes 7.3 and 7.4. Cypher 9. Nine traveled to Rishi to broker a deal to free uh, their first Sith intelligence handler, Shara Jin, who had been captured by Republic forces. 
Nine was able to free their old friend, but Chen had to undergo deprogramming to break Republic mind control techniques. After the after defeating the Order of Revan, Cipher Nine was promoted to the head of the new Imperial intelligence apparatus, Voidhound. The Voidhound ended up on Rishi while trying to pull a fast one on an unsuspecting Mark. This time, a hut selling tickets to a pleasure cruise. Voidhound and their companions did the job and got paid before participating in the Yavin Coalition that finally defeated Revan. For their hard work, Voidhound was given what amounted to a Republic get-out-of-jail-free card and told to track the Sith Emperor at any cost. Darth Knox, a.k.a. Lord Colling. Darth Knox began searching for the secrets to immortality as Sith are wont to do, following the trail to Rishi. There, Knox met an Imperial servant who had been researching immortality for 30 years on the orders of Sith, who believed the Rishi maze held the key to everlasting life. Knox investigated the servant's findings, though it is unknown whether they achieved immortality. Knox was also given full control of a fleet of silencers, ship-mounted superweapon lasers. Darth Knox then helped to defeat the Order of Revan, ordering... Earning Darth Mars trust in the process, the only member of the Dark Council to do so. The Barsenthor. The Barsenthor followed the, tra- the call of the Force to Rishi in 3638. Due to fears of losing accumulated knowledge to war, the Jedi Council began preserving what they could and instructed the Barsenthor to create a Jedi holocron. The Barsenthor found a Bothan Jedi on Rishi who taught him how to build a holocron and instill it with a small part of his spirit to dispense knowledge to future users. The Barsenthor then helped defeat Revan after joining the Yavin Coalition. The Hunter. The champion of the Grand Hunt arrived on Rishi to avenge the death of their first Imperial handler, Krista Markon. As a favor to Markon's daughter, the Hunter tracked down and killed the three criminals who had carried out the assassination. Hunter then returned Krista's belongings to her daughter and left to join the fight against the Order of Revan on Yavin 4. Meteor Meteor traveled to Rishi, chasing down Eclipse Squad, a Republic force composed of cyborgs implanted with experimental Infinite Army tech. Of course, the Eclipse Squad members went rogue. On Rishi, Meteor, and the rest of uh, Havoc Squad tracked down the cyborgs and ended them. Meteor then helped defeat Revan and, for their heroics, was promoted to Chief Military Advisor for Republic Special Forces. The Empire's Wrath. The Wrath traveled to Rishi to meet with their old patron, Darth Vaharon. There, the Wrath learned that the Emperor's hands were trying to bring about the Sith Emperor's return. The Wrath found and confronted the Emperor's hands, who were on Rishi's spine. Knowing that the Emperor survived and wanting to be free of his influence, the Wrath fully severed their connection to the Emperor. The Wrath then joined the Yavin Coalition and defeated Revan only to witness the Sith Emperor's rebirth. In light of the Emperor's betrayal, Darth Mar announced that the Sith Warrior's title would be Empire's Wrath. There it is, after so much confusion, the title officially changed. The Hero of Tython. The hero followed the Force to Rishi and found the Force Ghost of their old Jedi Master, Orgus Din. Master Din helped the hero overcome their guilt from having briefly turned into a pawn of the Emperor in 3641. 
With Din's aid, the hero expelled any trace of the Sith Emperor's influence from their mind. The hero thanked Orcus Din for helping them find peace and then departed to take part in the Yavin Coalition. After helping defeat Revan, the hero of Tython was given the title of Jedi Battlemaster, reserved for the most skilled lightsaber duelist and teacher in the Order. The class characters vanish. Just after Knights of the Fallen Empire begins in early, in early 3636, all eight class characters mysteriously vanish from the galaxy, ending each of their storylines. Though it's technically correct to say that seven of the eight class characters disappeared completely and one took on the title of the commander, but we digress. We're doing this now instead of next episode so we can cap off all their storylines at the exact same time. The only thing we know about any of the class characters after early 3636 is that the Barsenthor was buried in a tomb on Chandrilla that was rediscovered by Jaden Kor in 14 ABY. Swotor, Knights of the Fallen Empire. Released as DLC in October 2015, Knights of the Fallen Empire is Swotor's third story expansion and introduces us to the Sith Emperor's side piece, the Eternal Empire of Zakul. Now, let's get this out of the way up front. Zakul is anachronistic to the Star Wars universe in many ways. To cite but one example, the Eternal Empire's upcoming subjugation of the Republic and Sith Empire as vassals is a paper-thin facade to allow an overarching empire to rule the galaxy without technically violating Palpatine's proclamation of the First Galactic Empire in Revenge of the Sith. There are more of these contradictions and anachronisms, but we won't because we've got a story to tell and Swotor happens in a bubble anyway, so we'll just let it happen. With Knights of the Fallen Empire, Swotor permanently drops the character designations in class-specific stories. Strangely, the player character in Knights of the Fallen Empire is referred to as the Outlander, despite being known as the Commander in Shadow of Revan and as the Alliance Commander in the last two expansions. We'll use Commander and Outlander interchangeably because it's easier that way. In addition to getting a new nickname, the player also gets new companions, though their old companions are still around. To that end, certain romances with old companions can be rekindled. A female Republic trooper can romance Eric Jorgen. A female Imperial bounty hunter can romance Torian Kadera. A male Imperial agent can romance Kalio Janus, And a male Sith warrior can romance Zvet. The commander can also continue their romances with Lana Benico or Theron Chan, while male or female commanders can start a romance with Koth Vortena. The Eternal Empire. Knights of the Fallen Empire begins in early 3636, just before the class characters vanish, leaving only the commander behind. Uh, we won't get into the events of Knights of the Fallen Empire until next time, because we need to introduce the Eternal Empire, Valkorion, and his family right now. It's not every day we get a new superpower in the Star Wars galaxy, so let's back up a little. After ruling the Sith Empire for some time, the Sith Emperor began to grow tired of the limitations imposed by Sith doctrine and the trappings of his empire. Sometime between 4700 and 3900 BBY, he went in search of an ancient fleet of nearly unstoppable ships piloted by droids. In short, a fully loyal and obedient military. 
These stories led the emperor to Zakul, a backwater world filled with swamps and forest. The native humans of Zakul zealously worshipped a pantheon of vengeful gods, of vengeful deities known as the Old Gods. The Sithemperor obtained a new host body and claimed to be Valkorion, a messianic figure in Zakulan religion. Valkorion would later banish the old Zakulan religion outright. Once he had united the disparate tribes, Valkorion tasked his new subjects with excavating the Eternal Fleet from the endless swamps and building a new empire. This went on in secrecy for centuries as Zakul de- developed sprawling cities, advanced tech, and a functioning government. The Eternal Fleet was dredged up and, by 3636, boasted greater fleet strength than the Republic or Sith fleets. The fleet was mostly composed of large battle cruisers, but also had snub fighters for dogfighting. Finally, the fleet was staffed and piloted by sentient droids called Gemini Units controlled from Valkorion's eternal throne. Bottom line, in 3636, the Eternal Fleet's ships were more numerous, faster, and had greater firepower than any Republic or Sith ships. Only ships using Isotope 5 could outrun the Eternal Fleet, but they still couldn't outgun them. Only one ship, the Gravestone, was capable of defeating the Eternal Fleet, and and it had been lost to time. On the ground, uh, Zakul's military consisted of four sensitive knights of Zakul and sky troopers, which are battle droids. All of this was achieved in secret because Zakul lay in wild space in the farthest western regions of the galaxy. The family Valkorion. Valkorion's double life went on for years as Zakul's power grew and the Sith Emperor became more disillusioned with the Sith. The Sith Empire was kept in the dark because of the Emperor's use of many host bodies to carry out his will, though the Dark Council became suspicious as he became increasingly withdrawn. He took pleasure in the role of Valkorion, building an empire of his own and becoming romantically involved with a knight of Zakul named Senya Tyrol. Valkorion seemed genuinely happy, at least until they had kids. Sometime in the 3660s, Senya gave birth to twin boys named Arkan and Thexan, whom Valkorion openly disdained from the start. Arkan and Thexan grew into powerful warriors who built their first lightsabers as mere boys and inherited tremendous force power from their parents. They always stuck together, something Valkorion hated. As they grew, Arkan and Thexan were each affected by Valkorion's indifference, with Arcane becoming angry and Thexan becoming more insular from everyone but his brother. A few years after giving birth to twin boys, Senya gave birth to Valin, and she was an altogether different sort. Her power in the Force was such that she moved furniture while in her mother's womb and tore droids apart as a toddler. As she grew and her power became evident, it was clear Valin was a lot like Valkorion, becoming his favorite but also scaring him. Thus, Valkorion locked Valin away in a temple on Nathema, where the Nathema zealots were instructed to reign in her power through strict mental conditioning. Valkorion also had the zealots train Valin to be powerless if someone said the code phrase, kneel before the dragon of Zakul. For years, Valin was tortured as her incredible power was harnessed, turning her from a child with some anger issues into a mentally unstable monster. Senya felt... Valen suffering through the Force and attempted a rescue, but Valen refused to flee, blaming her mother for everything. 
Malin, now covered in ritualistic tattoos and sporting a shaved head, chose Valkorion over Senya again. Much of this appears in flashbacks in Sortor's last cinematic betrayal, which we will get to next time. After receiving sufficient mental conditioning, Valen returned to Zekul and joined her father's side along with Arkan and Thexen. During this time, Arkan and Valen grew close because of their mutual disdain for destiny and Valkorion's apathy. Around this time, the Galactic War began and the Sith Emperor continued juggling both empires until the final Emperor's voice host body was killed by the hero of Tython in late 3640. The death of this host uh, forced the Emperor's spirit to enter a restorative sleep for almost three years. With his spirit in forced hibernation, Valkorion withdrew from running the Eternal Empire and placed that host body in stasis. For the most part, Valkorion's absence went little notice, but it also removed his ability to tightly control Valen, which was bad. Without her father's watchful eye, Valen was able to test the full extent of her powers. Finally, in 3636, the Sith Emperor performed his ritual at Zyost, uh, regaining his power and cutting all ties with the Sith Empire. The Sith Emperor then consolidated his spirit within Valkorion, his final host body, and returned to Zakul in 3636. The only connection Valkorion retained was to his original pure-blood Sith body, which was kept hidden, as severing that link would kill him. With Valkorion's return to Zakul, the Eternal Empire's invasion of the galaxy was finally at hand. Warning Signs in early 3636, things looked great for Valkorion and his Eternal Empire. He consolidated all his power, has three heirs, controls a fleet more powerful than the Republican Sith fleets combined. Surely they will sweep away all foes brave or foolhardy enough to challenge them and institute a truly Eternal Empire. However, trouble lurked just under the surface. Sure, power consolidation increased Valkorion's already immense power in the Force, but it also left him vulnerable to, with no more hosts in which to transfer his essence. And yeah, having an heir and two spares is nice and all, but two of Valkorion's three heirs are actively plotting to murder him. Not to mention that the mother of his children is lurking in self-exile, waiting to free her children from the tyrannical clutches of their father. But Valkorion can always fall back on the Eternal Fleet, which seems truly unbeatable. The only ship that has ever stopped the Eternal Fleet is the long-lost Gravestone, and its location has been lost to the sands of time. It's not like the Eternal Empire's enemies are going to find the Gravestone buried in Zakul's swamps a few miles outside the capital. There's no way the Eternal Empire would leave the one thing that could possibly defeat them buried in the swamps, right? Well, you might think so, but you'd be wrong. Next episode, we'll resume the narrative in 3636, when Knights of the Fallen Empire begins, and we see how often Valkorion and his family can repeatedly snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. With that, thank you all for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we will watch as the Eternal Empire conquers the galaxy and is then defeated all in one episode. Follow us on Twitter at Photorpod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you.